0: So you're steep against packages that uh, you care about. And T the tool, will help you to identify those because it knows what you or your company or the team you work with are using, like the entire stack. Right. Uh, Because we underpin all that. So you stake against uh, packages that you care about and there'll be incentives for staking against packages that are less staked against. And then uh, every epoch will generate some currency and uh, you'll get some. As someone who is staking and the rest will go to the things you're staking against and then to their dependencies and their dependencies and their dependencies all the way down uh percentage each time so the more important you are in the stack the less you're getting uh because you're deeper but the more you're getting because you're more of a dependency
1: to Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel, where we explore projects in decentralized finance that are innovating and driving our mission of financial freedom forward. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review Mission DeFi and spread the word by posting a tweet to the show. All opinions expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests are their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Black Knox, Material Indicators, or any other affiliated organizations. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Brad Nickel or his guests as an inducement to make a particular investment, follow a particular strategy, or become involved with any project. A project being featured on the show is not an endorsement of that project in any way. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Now, here's Mission DeFi with Brad Nickel.
0: I fell back on programming because it was a hobby that I'd been doing for a long time, but just as a hobby. I uh, used to make like, little games when I was a kid and teenager, uh, toys mostly, little tools here and there. I, I made like, this clock for Windows that when you clicked it, it would move because no one had invented the idea of having a clock in the bottom corner of the screen at that point. Nice. Uh, which took me ages. Like Win32 was such a terrible API. I don't know if you've got any experience with that at all, but... I
2: I have no experience coding in Windows. Um, I have a uh, primitive experience coding in other environments, but uh, I do not have a ton. But I do remember how difficult uh, the devs I worked with, uh, how much difficulty they had. Yeah,
0: like it was, like, I'm glad it's gone. Uh, they They were designing for a different <laughs> era where, like, they the amount of symbols in the in the dynamic library was very important. So they rammed like huge amounts of functionality into the same function. And so if you pass different parameters to different um, indices in the parameter list, it would behave completely differently. And usually you'd have oh. to call the, the same function like four, three or four times by like, the first time to initialize a data structure that you would pass it and it would then uh, do whatever it did. It was uh, like so many black boxes and of course this was before the internet so figuring out how to actually do this stuff was incredibly difficult anyway so that's an aside, so uh, i was depressed about chemistry and i fell back on programming and i used to linux and i got involved in open source so my way into programming was open source from the start and uh nice so i i, I moved back in my parents and uh <laughs> began it's somewhat of an in-cell lifestyle, basically, but uh, I worked on uh, a bunch of different apps for Linux, and some of them were good and got attention. And I managed to get myself a job at a startup in London as a result, because uh, they used some of the things I built, and they saw that I was using the same toolkits. They were, and they were an open-source focused company, so it was uh, there I got myself into the industry. And a couple of years after I started there, I was lead developer for their apps. They made um, an app for Windows, Linux, Mac, Android, iPhone, and BlackBerry, uh, which did have an app store for a bit. And uh, the the process of using all the different open source libraries we we used, all the different build systems across all the different platforms, was infuriating. Uh, I I reckon we wasted like 30-40% of our time just pissing about with uh, the build system crap that you had to in order to make anything work. So, yeah, uh, that, that was the inspiration for Brew. Essentially, I wanted to build a package manager that was more hackable, more um, focused on developers and what developers needed, rather than being what I felt most package managers at the time were, which was like a set of very restrictive black boxes that were designed for system admins and for people uh, like putting up computers across the internet, but not in a way. And, uh, well, so I I started building that. And uh, after a few months, I open sourced it because I realized it was cool. And I managed to get some attention from some people who were influential on Twitter at the time. Uh, One guy from Ruby on Rails. And, you know, Brew was written in Ruby. So I made a number of really good decisions that led to its success, essentially. And after uh, about nine months, it was doing so well that I quit uh, the job I had to work on it full time.
2: Nice. So you're saying that because you built it in Ruby, it got attention because it, people in the Ruby community w- would promote it and talk about it. That helped.
0: Yeah, totally. Because at the time, like right, uh, totally different world. This was 14 years ago. Ruby was becoming very popular because of Ruby on Rails, because of 37 sure. signals, and um, Mac. The Mac came with Ruby, so I, I'd seen that popularity, and I. I was interested in the language. So I was like, well, if I build Homebrew with Ruby, then like I get to learn Ruby. And it'll be very easy for people to install Homebrew because right. it comes with the Mac. You don't have to like, piss about with uh, an installer or build it in the comp- it's no. There's no complicated build steps. Right. And open source at the time was vastly more complex than it is now. Like just experimenting with a new package that you found was usually uh, something where you had to like, set aside a few hours in your evening and h- cross your fingers that yep. it was going to work. So <laughs> it was very important to me that it was extremely easy for people to get going. So, yeah, decisions so, like that.
1: So, Max, you, you, you switched from a regular day job to doing this full time. Was there a, a revenue enticement to do that or was it just a more fun project or you yeah.
0: had to pick where you were going to spend your life? Yeah, well, certainly no revenue inducement for it. Um, you know, I I I was young. I didn't really care about the money. I had like a few thousand pounds saved up in my bank, and uh, working on home brew was way way awesome. Like I enjoyed the job I had. Uh, we, we it was a cool <laughs> web two startup. It was music focused. Last spam, it was called. Uh, I love the people there, but uh, suddenly I managed to build something which was getting, like, global nice. attention. I could feel that I'm nice. making something that was going to be enormous if I if I put the time in. Right. And and so it was easy for me to decide to do that. Like, I, I've, I've always been the one where I don't mind going up to zero on my bank account, and, well, I did.
2: <laughs> I know what you mean. Well, it's funny because, you know, I'm not – a developer would never call myself that, but I am a software junkie, and I love open source and always have. Um, have been using it for a very long time, and as as someone that's not a developer and someone that wasn't a Linux expert, I used Linux, I played with it, etc. For me, finding Homebrew was a lifesaver because I I would go to try out a new open source package, and I now not only had to learn how to deal with that application, whatever it was I wanted to use but I also had to u- figure out how to use all and install and manage and deal with all the dependencies right And so mm-hmm. for from from the perspective of kind of the non-targeted use case, it, it was a real lifesaver for me because I knew that for the most part, um If I used Brew to install an, an application, I wasn't gonna have to go through five hours of trying to figure out everything else that went 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 along with it and so oh, yeah. um so from there was there was a use case for for junkies like me that wanted to play with everything that came out um just to make my life simpler and easier so
0: and I'm sure for developers it was it was a dream as well yeah, that you know that's what I wanted to build was something that allowed you to explore like, all the fruits of open source without it being a pain in the butt. And I right. kind of felt like I was in a unique position to do that as well. Like, The work I'd been doing in open source, I was so obsessed with all the users of our apps that couldn't use them <laughs> yeah. Be- because they got somewhere in the build instructions and it was failing. And it, it made me realize how fragile the entire ecosystem was. Like, There's right. so many ways to break... Your shit. And uh, so I just I wanted to build something that made it so you could still experiment. But a lot of that uh, environment management that goes into making sure these packages install correctly was handled for you in a nice way. And, and basically, you know, I did succeed with that, which was, was satisfying, really. Like, ultimately, I'm, I'm like you. I want to be able to have fun with my computer
2: exactly what was what was the timing on on the launch of of brute
0: it was uh the first commit was may 17th 2009 oh wow and uh then i didn't open source it until uh later that year i'm not entirely sure when and then uh it, it immediately got a reasonable amount of attention uh well not immediately but after a few months and then right. uh, over the next year, it became the biggest project on GitHub by far. Nice. Like GitHub, was, GitHub was pretty new at that point. And that was another thing going in the favor of Homebrew, right? So GitHub figured out how to make open source collaboration just that much better. Like, you know, small little details that they put into the product made a 100% difference in how easy it was for people to collaborate. Right. Mac- Max, what
1: was it like for you to get projects
0: to work with a different new
1: package manager were you able to leverage the libraries that were already out there or did people actually have to go jump to a bunch of hoops to move things over into the keg universe
0: yeah um so you know this is a difficult question to answer um people hate new tools that (laughs) that, that's that's always the way of things because uh, they they don't want to unlearn what they've learned. And so you, you need to really get a bunch of pain points right for them to switch. Um, but Homebrew was probably the first project to really tap into GitHub's virality for how contribution can work. And I was quite clever in the way that I built Homebrew so that you could clone Homebrew. And that was a working installation there was nothing more that needed to be done and nice. as a result you could edit the uh, the package formula the recipes in in that checkout and then commit and push so the, the steps required to actually contribute to homebrew were as minimal as they could be uh tea is actually slightly more tricky but i you know i realized there was good reasons for that over the years but it's still a lot easier than most open source projects are. Like, I think this is an issue with open source in general, is that often they don't explain to people who might be interested in participating, in joining that community, like, how to actually do that. Yep. And yeah, then... no,
2: climbing through docs is a nightmare at times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it should be intuitive, easy, and like as simple as possible. I'll, you're losing potential contribution every time it, there's a step removed. Yeah, yep. I think a lot of open source projects fail because of that, uh, well, rather I'm, than because they don't get enough traction.
2: And and then there are assumptions about the dependencies that they think people will already understand and know. Um, and I assume this is true for developers and non-developers that that um, that also throws them off. So. Um, again a, a good justification for it so you've released t this year and um tell me kind of the what what inspired you to try to take this to a different not i mean not a completely different direction but definitely uh, a different direction in terms of interaction um potential user interface uh user interactions user experience both graphical and command line um give us kind of the the genesis of 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 t if you could
0: yeah right, sure So. You Know, I worked on Homebrew for years and uh, I was a dictator on that project. <laughs> um, quite literally, like I modeled myself, myself after Linux because you know, nice. Well, what's the most successful open source project of all time? Well, there you the go, Li- the Linux kernel. And so, I, I, I'd seen big projects uh, when I, worked, when I got involved in open source initially, flail flail around and make bad calls and make bad products and bad software and be not particularly successful. Like it's been the year of the Linux desktop for 20 years, right? right? Every year is going to be the year of the Linux desktop. Why do they fail? Because they don't have a, a good leader. None of these projects have a good leader, in my opinion. I don't think the Linux kernel would, have, would exist if Linus hadn't been the man he is. As as much of a dick he is, <laughs> <laughs> like you, you have to rule these projects, and so I ruled Homebrew as a dick. Quite honestly, I wasn't very nice, and uh, I got a bad rep on the internet as a result of it. And um, it was necessary no well, to get it to get it to where it got, because um, those first three or four years were essential for guiding it to what it became, and then I could pass it to the community and i did because honestly uh i was a bit burned out well being a dick can be exhausting (laughs) (laughs) uh, it's true honestly uh i don't like being i get it takes me hours to get over it um but ultimately i'm obsessed with quality yeah and so i give the people i work with a hard time a lot of the time because I, i want things to be as good as they can be um maybe one of these years i'll figure out how to stop being like that well, well there's well,
2: a there's a lot of there there's a lot of companies that have been incredibly successful because of those kinds of attitudes um apple and steve jobs and yeah. amazon jeff bezos you know um it seems to be a theme amongst some successful projects
0: yes uh, i fear is necessary but it's um It's not (laughs) nice. Okay. So, you know, I wasn't that bad. I wasn't wasn't jobs quality or anything. Um, Oh, that's good. So yeah, like I I, I burned out and also like, it was done. I I knew it was done. Uh, It was time to hand it over to the community. And so I think it was 2015 when I pushed the button and moved it off my username onto the home organization. Um, I was at a Christmas party in Chicago and uh it was, it was at this boot camp that I was teaching at and uh, i was teaching there because they allow me to do half time so i got paid to do half time teaching and then i spent the other half of my time working on open source nice that's a good gig yeah like that's what i've been like my whole career i've been looking for ways to only work on open source because it's way more fun and sure. way more imp- impactful. Um and I, I showed my boss at the time the, the page where I could move Homebrew off my username onto the homebrew organization. And I said, should I do it? And he said, <laughs> Max. Fuck no. <laughs> and uh it was about five, ten minutes after that that I realized that I had to, precisely for like his reaction, right? Because he was like, you don't want to lose this project. It's the biggest project on GitHub. It's on your username. Like, there's so much opportunity in this for you. And right. I knew that Homebrew was not about me. It was about what it had become as a project and how important it was to the world and to the people who used it and its community. Right. So, so, so he, he helped me uh, indirectly. But he certainly expressed like, why I was having trouble doing it. So, yeah, like, uh, about 2015, I stopped on, working on it full time. Uh, but in the years after that, uh, I never stopped thinking about what I would do to brew if I could do it again. You know, what, yeah. what things could a package manager be? Because um, I realized that the package manager is like the base of every dev stack. Uh, there's enormous potential and power there that like no package manager seemingly has even brute you know like, I was quite pleased with brute, but really like i, I didn't push any boundaries significantly. It was still just installed and updated packages right I didn't, didn't do anything particularly different to all the others like since the first package manager, which I think was Slackware's package manager, like back in the nineties like the the first person who realized that we needed some software to manage this shit because it had become too complicated because open source is like this tower of dependencies and every year we add more and more things to that tower to that stack and uh things never get removed right because they work and uh we want to build new things we don't want to fix the old things. That's why OpenSSL is still so huge, even though every month there's a security exploit. Yeah.
2: <laughs> because having to get something else or build something else is too much work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's the truth. And why is that? Well it's because of the nature of open source, right? It's free. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because, because nobody is really uh encouraged to work on it. You you have to have a full time job. And you have to work on your evenings and weekends if you care about your open source. And I've done that so many times. So I spent years looking for solutions so that I could work on open source. So I had a Patreon for a bit. I couldn't get it above $800. And I felt like I was begging. I really felt like I was begging for people's support. And um, that feels bad. But also, like, I was spending 30%, 40% of my time doing that. Right, right. Trying trying to get these donations so that i could work on open source and i tried like a newsletter and i tried like a few other things and i I just could never get the kind of support i needed and uh you know even now i've got github sponsors still but i get i think seven dollars a month
2: (laughs) (laughs) so that was part of the motivation for T as well right is that you wanted to you wanted to build it differently all the things you've been thinking of but you also wanted to build in a model for for um, helping developers, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead back to kind of you. You thought that you had um, some better ways to do things. What, what was some of that that was kind of germinating for you over that time?
0: Yeah, well, um, you know, I think we can talk about that in a in a bit. Like I was leading up to, you know, I just kept I kept making notes about what could a package manager be, and over the years I came up with some pretty cool stuff, but I still didn't have the incentive. I felt. People would ask me every now and again, are you going to make another brew? Because, <laughs> you know, let's face it, it's it's a little stagnant. Like, I still know the core cool maintainer, uh, Mike McQuaid, who was a friend I, I, I had from way back when I got into open source initially. We both worked on KDE together. Wow. And uh, he contacted me pretty early on after Homebrew got on Hacker News for like the fourth time in a week. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, he, he asked if permission to join. I was like, "Well, it's an open-source project. Uh, just, just contribute." <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, we're, we were both British, so we both had these sort of uh, these manners that needed to uh, be <laughs> adhered to. And uh, he's, he still runs the project. Um, overall, like, he's almost certainly done more time and more dedication to it than me. But uh, he's, he's not the same kind of guy as me. He doesn't invent and he doesn't create new things. Uh, he maintains. Sure. And um, so, you know, people ask if I would do it again. And I'll, I'll be like, nah, I don't see the point. But it was about 18 months ago where uh, I had a friend who was always trying to get me into crypto stuff. Always trying to get me into Web3. Um, way back when Ethereum had just launched, he's like, hey, Max, you can do smart contract dev for 500 bucks an hour. Even <laughs> that didn't really appeal to me because I've never been truly motivated by the money. You know, right. I, I'm not. I'm not an idiot. I, I want enough money so that I can uh, live my life. And it would be great to have enough money so I could just work on open source full time. But it's not, it's not the motivation. I want to make cool stuff. And so I was like, well, okay. Like, I, I think Bitcoin is very impressive. I've read the white paper. But I don't see why it interests me. Um, but I was in between things. I, I didn't want to have to get another contract again. So I started looking into it. And it was while I was messing around with NFTs on OpenSea that I saw that 10% uh, smart contract that directs 10% of the, uh, the the money you pay for an NFT to the original creator. Right. And, and I saw how you can use smart contracts to do interesting things with that currency that you couldn't really do with traditional banking. You couldn't force it, not without a lawyer, not without right. hiring someone to enforce that without an entire legal system to make sure that people obey those contracts. It just happens automatically. And I had this moment of inspiration where I suddenly saw the the entire package graph of a package manager and how all these little dependency diagrams and the graph of all that dependency information could be remunerated if you could just get some token into the top of that graph. It would just filter all the way down through all of it. Um, helping every package that needs help to be maintained and suddenly i had a reason to build a successor to brew i had all these great ideas for what a a new brew could be and i had a compelling new feature that made it to me so that i I could see how i could sell this to people it's hard it's hard to sell a replacement for something it's much easier to sell something that is new the solves new pain points, but uh, this and uh, you know people get behind that message. They see how what we're doing with crypto is different to most of the other projects out there.
2: Well, and, and aligning incentives is is always uh, a powerful model for getting people to make changes, right? So I, I think that makes complete sense to think of a way to to set up and reward people.
0: Yeah, like. Honestly, I think we really nailed this. <laughs> like, we're at the point where we're gearing up to build out the test net, and I have some amazing people at T who are really uh, are, are like uh, years of experience in this area, like with the tokenomics, um, with understanding blockchain technology, understanding which blockchains make sense for what we're doing. And uh, we've designed such an incredible system. I just can't see how it's going to fail at this point. That's awesome.
2: What's um? What chain are you guys building that on?
0: Uh, I'll be able to tell you next week. We've uh, got it down to three candidates. All uh,
1: right. Are they of them.
0: a particular genre? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, th- at this point, it's almost certainly Ethereum based. So, uh, okay, it'll be la- layer two, layer three.
2: Oh, I was I, I was gonna I was gonna I was gonna pitch uh, Canto to you because I'm uh, working on their biz, biz dev group, and I think their ethos supports this nicely. But uh, I won't put any pressure on you. <laughs> um, um, okay, so can you kind of explain to us kind of where you guys are with kind of the the model of how 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 developers will earn for maintaining and updating and and I'm assuming there's a model for how getting people to put packages in. What what are you guys kind of thinking about how that's going to function?
0: Yeah, so uh, it's a proof of stake system. Well, it, you know, people will be staking, although we call it steeping, uh, <laughs> just, I <yes>. love it. <laughs> That's a dad joke appeal. I love that. That's awesome. Go ahead. Well, it's, it's not exactly staking, so it works to use its own word. But, you know, like, um, Brew, Brew was famous for his uh, terminology, and uh, I wanted some of that with tea, although a little less... So you're steep against packages that uh, you care about. And T, the tool, will help you to identify those because it knows what you or your company or the team you work with are using, like the entire stack. Right. Uh, Because we underpin all that. So you stake against uh, packages that you care about and there'll be incentives for staking against packages that are less staked against. And then uh, every epoch will generate some currency and uh, you'll get some as someone who is staking and the rest will go to the things you're staking against and then to their dependencies and their dependencies and their dependencies all the way down a uh, nice. percentage each time. So the more important you are in the stack, the less you're getting uh, because you're deeper, but the more you're getting because you're more of a dependency. Right. Like, so, cause
2: there'll be more projects that use you. And so you'll be getting a flow from all of those projects, uh, even though you're further down the
0: stack. Exactly. Uh, like the, 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 the open source projects that are the most important that means they that keep the internet running, keep all software running. Uh, they're the ones that have the most dependence. And this is the kind of information you can't fake, right? right. You, can't, you can't pretend that you're an important package. Other people <laughs> have to choose that you're an important package. They've made that decision. Yeah. Yeah. People are staking against the packages that have made those decisions. And then the, their dependents have made those decisions again. So it's, it's kind of page rank. And so we've actually heavily dipped into Google's page rank, uh, their uh, academic paper on the topic, and adapted it to what we're doing to make sure that the uh, the way the token rewards are split is, uh, A, like you can't spam it and you can't game it also that the rewards go to the right places. And, you know, we don't, we don't want to give too much to the, to some people and not enough to others. Sure. So we're, we're being very careful with the models that we're generating right now to make sure that, uh, you know, I, I want people to be able to make a a good living off of their open source. I want it to be possible for people to quit their well-paid web two positions. And just working open source—that was the entire point behind Love this, it. right? Yeah, that, that's why so, I wanted to build this.
1: So, Max, have you thought about? I mean, all of these—all these projects have some amount of community, whether it's just the GitHub issues list, or they have mailing lists, or Discords, or whatever. Have you thought about surfacing that community in some way inside of T, where perhaps there can be community contributions besides just the mechanism? Maybe a reputation uh, piece on top of this where the, uh, you know, usage sometimes is not necessarily the only indicator of the value of a project. It might be a really critical utility. And I'll I'll give you an example. I use carbon copy clone or sometimes to get myself out of a world of hurt when a hard drive crashes. And it might be once every three years that I do it. But when I do it, it's worth a lot to me. And so there's projects that don't necessarily, aren't necessarily gauged in their value by the frequency of usage but maybe some other measure is there you have a mechanism that can accommodate that
0: yeah so you know we've given it a lot of thought um so things like that are still what we call apps they're apps in the graph so they're the top of the stack uh they're not dependencies they they don't have any dependence and uh stuff like that will need to be steeped against um we will encourage people to steep against things that aren't being steeped against, giving them better rewards. But ultimately, uh, it'll be up to you to uh, uh, make sure that you're using tea to tell you what you need to be steeping against. Like maybe you use that like very rarely, but you should have it installed so tea is telling you that you need to be steeping your token against it. Because mm-hmm. your incentive to steep is that you're getting rewards, as well as participating in acknowledging the true value of open source. Also, uh, we're hoping what will happen is that companies will uh, steep extra. Um, we're, we're heavily investigating right now the opportunity to make it so that uh, companies can like declare this as a charitable donation. Ah, oh, so nice. So they can get that tax write-off for that. And then uh, they stick it in the graph and steep against uh, everything that they have used. And so like, uh, you know, Packages like that, it will also be in their interest to appeal to their communities. When we go live, we're going to have on the testnet a website you can go to that tells you as the package maintainer how much T-token you would be earning. Um, We're hoping this will incentivize people to onboard the the protocol.
1: Yeah,
0: that's great. So you can go there and see what it will be, but then if it's not enough because your app then what you need to start doing is uh, uh, energizing your community, getting them to participate, getting them to make Microsoft feel bad because Microsoft (laughs) uses it, but they're not (laughs) steeping against it. And this is transparent, right? It's blockchain. So everyone will be able to see where all these uh, contributions are coming from. And if these companies that make a lot of money off this open source aren't actually putting their money where their mouth is,
2: yeah, that's really interesting, too, because, you know, you'll have companies come in asking the maintainers to, to help them out with something or or they'll try to hire them for consulting or whatever. So they'll have an idea of who's using these things anyway. But the 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 beauty of it is that 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 public pressure on uh, these companies to to participate in the steeping um, makes a ton of sense. Uh, I love yeah. the, that model. And it, and it gives the incentive to the projects themselves to work a bit harder on communications and community building and engagement, right? Because now you really want people to, to stay engaged, involved, using it, updating it, whatever, so that it provides more rewards back and, and gives you an opportunity to tell them, hey, please uh, steep uh, against our project so that, so that we can earn more and keep this thing going. And I think that's an easier ask because uh, if you're steeping, you are earning as well than just, hey, would you contribute money to our project?
0: Right. Yeah, totally. Um, but like you're you invested. What will the exactly. be on that
1: steeping? Is there a lockup period? Is it how liquid is the
0: is the steeped asset? Yeah, it's gonna be a lockup period. Um uh, my people are still figuring out the exact details. So we're gonna have a uh, yellow paper written um, you know, around the same time the testnet comes out, which has all the details. But, like, you know, it's complicated. I, I kind of feel yeah. that we're building one of the more complicated systems that has been built on blockchain, but it's so important that we get it right. Otherwise so,
1: so that makes me you know, I want to answer I wanna ask a couple of propeller head questions that I'm
0: sure you know the answer to, but
1: but I'm just curious. So with with homebrew as the as the predecessor of this, how much of the under the hood infrastructure is is leveraged for that i mean package managers got a repository somewhere and an index of packages and a bunch of metadata and the dependency trees and all of that stuff is that similar to what you guys did in homebrew or is it
0: re-rolled from scratch yeah like i took the learnings that i had from homebrew for sure i uh t and brew have some fundamental dissimilarities like t avoids installing anything in a global prefix that means it's not um, installed onto your computer in a way that could damage it um, is the main thing. So it's user- uh,
1: it's like user level installs.
0: Yeah, it's user level. Like every package in T is relocatable, which is another thing I learned to do because you know it's a problem with homebrew. It's a problem with every package manager honestly. It's a lot more flexibility when things are relocatable. But we install them into the home directory. Dot T is the directory, and uh, it's all under there. Uh, it's not like available in use local or anything. And then we and and
1: that's not unlike what other platforms npm
0: does that for instance with node or whatever.
1: So from uh, from an operational infrastructure perspective, as an open source uh, project, do you guys have a lot of uh, centralized assets that you have to manage, or are you encouraging people to mirror the the repos? How is that going to work? Is there a crypto incentive for people to do it,
0: participate at that level? But like, certainly we want uh, all our assets to be set- decentralized. And uh, I thought that we would be there by now, but the truth is centralization is easier and we're uh, concentrating on different aspects of what we're doing with the product right now. But uh, making it so all the packages are in IPFS or some other decentralized storage mechanism uh, is absolutely a priority because you know, we want this to be... <laughs> Uh, the package manager that beats all the others that um, you can rely on this is immutable and robust and uh, won't go down. Like, uh, to a certain extent, we already proved that because when GitHub went down the other day, uh, you couldn't use brew, but you couldn't use tea. Uh, we're more decentralized than brew is at this point. I mean, let's face it, brew is <laughs> all on GitHub and a lot of the people who work on brew full-time Work at GitHub uh, and Microsoft huh. on that.
1: So, I have, a, I have a, a couple of sort of hypothetical
0: questions to ask. They're
1: extremely self serving, and, and Brad will probably <laughs> kick me under the table as I ask them. But, you know, the, 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 the presentation and the user experience of T, where I've got this uh, catalog of, of apps, there's obviously the opportunity to present a lot of data in the context of the application the rationale for why would I install this, how do I do it? How does it work? Links to the documentation. It's a, a wonderful alternative to, you know, brew install. And I have no idea what it's going to do when I click that button other than it's going to go pull down a bunch of stuff. It's a it's a great user experience. It it, it seems, you know, it's fundamentally in its current incarnation, at least this way I've played with it, focused on installing OS system level native code style applications that are uh, you know substrate to other projects plus applications on top of that. If hypothetically you had a system that had a requirement for an app store like interface, but they weren't necessarily things that were installed at the OS level. Pick a pick a platform that has a 4GL and I don't know, it doesn't matter. It can be something like Salesforce or Oracle 4GL or any number of other runtime environments where they're self-contained roblox whatever and i wanted to present uh installable componentry is there a is there any path in the t roadmap that would allow for things at that level basically sub of another platform to be managed and installed as well yeah.
0: uh, like a or maybe like a private white label
1: version yep. of this that you might
0: yeah so uh you've uh you identified one of our future features that we want to add for sure. <laughs> like, uh, you're, you're talking about the, uh, the T GUI. So, uh, T has a few different incarnations, uh, incantations now. And uh, the CLI is the package manager everyone's familiar with. Like, it works on the terminal. And then, you know, years ago, I realized that opens like package managers were kind of like app stores. Um, and if you presented, a package manager in that manner, it could open up all sorts of interesting opportunities. Uh, open source is really rich, like amazingly rich, but it's been locked behind essentially a a geeky terminal interface for forever. And uh, so we're trying to change that with the GUI. But yeah, like, would, would uh, this
1: work with Would this work with language focused repos like npm or Ruby Gems or something like that's more granular than packages that you currently have in T? Could I envision seeing this on top of docker hub perhaps
0: uh maybe you know like uh, i I always feel that stuff like brew and tea is special in that you can't get npm without brew or tea uh we're, we're this layer beneath and you know npm really is developer package manager that has some neat command line tools in but it doesn't have um apps essentially and so, you know, straight away when we launched T GUI, we were presenting stable diffusion web UI as like one example of what you can do with T GUI that's really tricky in any other capacity. Yep. Uh, and
2: and that's actually the reason I you know, in the Chuck before the call, I had actually sent uh, Max some critiques and things I want to see in the platform. And one of the questions I asked him was, Is, you know, you've got all this hype around AI and you've got all these you know, wanna be users of these platforms. The fact that stable diffusion and auto GPT or one click installs is huge. I could really see like a subcategory of just all the AI apps that every non-dev or non-technical person would want to install but would never be able to do. And so I think that's an ex- a really exciting um, tactical market to go after to grow the user base as well.
1: There, there are so many of these, I mean, it, it's, it scales up and down, right? There's, there's programming language level repos of functionality. There are these OS level repos of functionality. It scales all up and down, but it's the same model. Let me present you a catalog of functionality, give you some discovery tools. And in your case, provide a mechanism for monetization. I would really encourage you guys to figure out how to, how to if you don't want to have it be part of your core uh, project, find out a way to collaborate with forks of this that could go sit on top of the NPM repositories or the Ruby gem libraries or some third party platforms that need app store functionality, because what you guys are doing with the integration between the crypto uh, payment rewards mechanisms and the presentation of the projects and the potential to tie in the community really could scale across the entire stack from high level applications all the way down to the, tiniest little library that i might include in my source code it's it's really pretty sexy in that regard
0: yeah i appreciate that and uh yeah like uh i gotta say um we already are integrating npm and um you know pip and uh ruby gems and and all the package managers like we we package everything and uh, if they have things that make sense to be displayed in like a store context then People are welcome to package them up and put them there. Like we accept anything that makes sense, and uh, we're certainly aiming to do like third-party uh, additions to the store. So uh, I call it multi-pantry because the pantry is where you uh, write the package YAML files that describe packages, and I want to open this up so that people can make their own pantries that can be installed into the store and th- those can represent storefronts for anything like a category of open source or an area of open source that requires special treatment like uh, one of the first examples I can think of that this makes sense for us is stable diffusion's web UI has this extension market essentially uh-huh, exactly and, right that's, and uh, that's exactly uh, that should be yeah that should be uh, a first class denizen of the, the package page for Stable Diffusion Web UI. So if you install Stable Diffusion Web UI, its storefront is available to be installed. Or yeah, you're just drilling down one more level, that's right. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I, I, have, I think we'll do it.
1: If I have a custom package
0: inside of,
1: of T that might not be built for the typical, hey, I'm going to run a shell script behind the scenes to do this install, but needs to get handed off to another application, will you guys have the ability for Key to invoke custom installers, or does it need to be in control of the process for all of the dependency management and uninstall and all that stuff?
0: Yeah, so we're going to add hooks over time. I'm very not interested in having installers, right? This is why we write package managers because we hate installers. We want to know <laughs> what those things are doing to our systems. So currently, Packages in T are very basic. They're just tarballs that have to be configured in the right way. There's no post-install steps. But one of the things I knew that we should do when I was making my notes about what brew could do better was cross-package integrations. So it's something I really want to do over time is that if you have a package foo and a package bar installed, they know that they are better together and that they can enhance each other. And so we'll have hooks in place to make it so that they can do that enhancement in a way that is um, controllable so the user knows that their system isn't being destroyed by uh, this this thing and you never know that when you install some software right, right. Like you, in, right. You, install the, you install the zoom installer you don't know what it's doing yeah. and uh, it seems to do a lot <laughs> <God> <laughs> <say>. <laughs> and I don't like it and I don't want it to be doing that stuff <laughs>
2: Yeah, and it's harder to get it out. Well, and I like the you know we talked you and I talked um, offline about uh, the bundling ideas and you know just back kind of to that to that AI example. One of the w- one of the things I can see is uh, is you know people that are creating applications in AI and creating LLMs and creating fine tuning mechanisms and everything else, even you know uh, pa- other kinds of packages related to it being able to kind of like cross germinate what they're doing um, and being able to allow users to see what's available that's gonna work with what they already have. I think that's I think that's brilliant. I, I think that'll be very powerful.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited about what we can do in the AI space, but just, just making it so that you can get your models in a way that other packages can use. And so you just depend on stable diffusion. Rather than requiring the user to download it from Hugging Face or making a script that can down, like Stable Diffusion Web UI downloads itself, right? I I don't want it to. I want it to be able to depend on the package. And uh, so we're also going to be like packaging up all the AI UIs that exist. Like open source is great because people throw together this awful UI stuff. It's usually awful, and like it's a web UI, and like you have to install packages to make it work. But that's how the genesis of everything that comes after happens. This is where the rapid iteration in open source occurs. Like all these nice apps that come later, they're all inspired by these quick hacky solutions that people throw together. Like AutoGPT is a great example of someone throwing a hacky solution together. It's not nice. You can't download the iPhone app. There isn't a native Mac application for it, yeah? It was just <laughs> a bunch of people, like, rapidly iterating. And I want the T-Store to be the forefront place where you can experience those things. Now, you know, it might not be for everyone as a result, right? These UIs aren't great, but right. they are.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think what it does is it gives more exposure. It drives the developers to create better. Um, you know, it just makes it, it makes it better all the way around.
0: Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, once the token's live, there'll be some very interesting consequences for being, you know, in the TU ecosystem.
2: Nice. Well, my next question kind of was, and I don't don't know if this is sacrilege or not, but, you know, a lot of the open source models revolve around um, kind of almost a freemium model sometimes where, there's this. It's either you know install yourself, or you can uh, use it on our servers, or it's install yourself and we have plugins. Is there a model for for T later on where there's um, the ability for the developers to using the token to license or sell add-ons or services into um, into projects?
0: Yeah, almost certainly. Like there's a there's a few ways we can go. Like we're not going to start that way. We're going to be very right. careful. Open right. source is too important to be disrupted in a major sense. Right. So, you know, the, people often ask me if you're going to have to pay for installing Node now, like 0.1 cents or something. And, uh, you know, that, I knew from the start that we couldn't fundamentally change how open source worked in that matter. Right, right. That, that's why like, the, the steeping system came to be. We, we, we found this way to support open source in a way where it's almost like investing in open source. Rather than paying directly for it, which you know fits so well with crypto, but you know there's so many, there's so much opportunity for what we can do once that system is engaged, and certainly the idea of using the GUI uh, to make like a subscription system or kind of premium model for open source is one. I'm a little apprehensive about it, uh, but we have a bunch of DeFi ideas that I think will almost certainly go ahead of that. Like uh, making sure that uh, a project is guaranteeing the security of itself. Like so many open source projects have security exploits that damage industry and the internet and open source itself. Right. So, you know, there could be a kind of futures market where you uh, bet against essentially the security of different open source packages. Oh, man. uh, so uh, we, we think that there's huge opportunities because essentially we're creating an economy around what already has so much value. and That nobody yeah. has successfully managed to figure out how to actually buoy up that market and make it represent its true value before.
1: You know, Brad, that f- freemium piece that you brought up made me think, I mean, I I have, my early career was Uh, an open source shareware project that morphed into a really successful commercial product. And along the way we had to figure out how to accommodate those people who'd been very supportive in the open source shareware world into the commercial space. And the, the idea that in with a crypto infrastructure under the hood, being able to use things like NFTs to provision access and turn on various features in our product, you know, you get the stock NFT just for, uh, on a project which lets you run it you pay a little extra you get these more these features turned on i know that starts to delve off into some things that are a bit of uh, the antithesis of some open source projects but others which do have I and mean, there's lots of projects that have an open source or free component and a, a for pay and supported commercial version this might be a really interesting infrastructure if you guys added just one little notch somewhere in there that hey, and we also issue NFTs that work with these projects to enable features or provide access or give you, you know, a, a number of transactions or a time period or something. That could be a cool infrastructure that would keep developers from having to reinvent the wheel a million times over.
0: Yeah, totally. And, um, you know, the, I think the way we will handle this initially is, you know, it's EVM compatible? We build smart contracts to enable this functionality. Nice. And- we're big into open source, so we hope that the community will come up with great ideas and then try them out and see which ones win. And almost certainly if there's ones that make a lot of sense for enough open source projects, because every open source project's different, yeah. then uh, we will invest in formalizing that to some extent. But yeah, there's you know, so much potential. I'm, I'm very excited about what open source will be able to do once we've given them this, and we are giving it to them, right? We're releasing it autonomously on, on chain and uh, stepping back. Like T Incorporated is not taking any percentage of any of the fees that are being pre- provisioned around the chain. Uh, we build our own open source, right? We want to be steeped against ourselves. That's our revenue model. Love potentially, it. Potentially, uh, we could do something with the, the T GUI, with the store, and so we could there's revenue opportunity for us there but the the, uh, the protocol is genuinely a gift to the open source ecosystem to try and make it sustainable love it i love it
2: um so i think we've kind of covered i wanted to kind of get into co- the what's coming next it sounds like we've we've hit a lot of that is there anything else uh, about t we should know I, I mean i know there is some capability that's um uh, at the command line with uh, magic that uh, gives more power to users. Do you want to dive into that a little bit?
0: Yeah, sure. Like, uh, Teakly, uh, the package manager, the one that people are used to, uh, it's, it's great. Uh, the magic that we put into it means that you don't think about installation and you don't worry about whether or not you've got the right version of things installed. T, uh if you type the command it just installs it and then runs the command. So you could type node and then a script. If it's not installed, T installs Node and then runs the script. And inside that script, it could specify exactly what version of Node it needs because, you know, we're developers. We need specific versions of things, not arbitrary whatever brew happens to have today versions of things. And T can install multiple versions of everything. It's a version manager for everything, uh, not just um, the latest or greatest. And you no longer need to have a version manager for Ruby and Node and uh, NPM and all the others installed. You can just get on with it. Um, love, love that. It's a it's, it's really, I think it's kind of like the, the peak what a package manager can be at the terminal layer. And then, you know, most of the other cool things that we've got coming are in the GUI. I, I, we have a, a super interesting set of ideas coming later this year. Well, I won't spoil, but uh, <laughs> essentially tapping into what open source is fundamentally. trying to build a kind of new kind of marketplace on top of that that's awesome and and we just this weekend released LibT, which uh essentially makes package management a library so you can run a, a node app and install anything using it um so if you if you need postgres and podman and uh you know whatever else you might need uh, you don't need Teakly, you don't need any other T software, it's just a node package you can install and then you can uh, grab any other kind of software that you might need in there. I think that could be pretty interesting and powerful. We're using it internally for all of our products so it just made sense to release it and it also goes into the idea that I had which was to to make packaging a primitive, like it shouldn't be tied behind a tool. Packaging is could be something that's more flexible than that. So this is the first step there.
2: Nice. Very nice. Well, okay. So uh, before we wrap up, um, you know, I know you've been diving in uh, to AI a, a good amount. What, what are you playing with and what are you excited about?
0: Um, so <laughs> one thing I really want to build, and I'm probably going to make it into a package, is something that can curate my Twitter feed and uh, supplement that with reading Hacker News and then going into my email to check on all the newsletters I never read. So, you know, <laughs> uh, probably using Auto GPT, but I don't know. I, have you tried Auto GPT? It's a little difficult to control. So, no. And uh, I'd really love if I didn't have to use OpenAI for it, like GPT for all and things like that. We package those. I really want to be able to. Uh, make it so uh, the the model that these kinds of things use, uh, as long as it's like the same kind of model, can be swapped in and out using T, because T can just like facilitate grabbing the different kinds and making sure that they're usable. If if the product can switch, so you know, I don't want it to cost me a fortune to to run this thing, but yeah, like. I, I, I am addicted to Twitter because I need the information it provides me, <laughs> but <laughs> there's so much crap I don't care about. So I just need like, um, you know, one of these LLMs prompt it with, I only care about tech. I'm, I'm Max Howell. Google me. This is the kind of tech I'm interested in. Uh, tell me, tell me what I need to read. And uh, yeah, I might put that in the tea store. That's great. That's great. I love it. Chuck, you have anything else? Oh, my
1: head's already spinning. I've got a million questions, but not for today.
2: All right. All right. Well, Max, I really appreciate it. Everybody um, go to t.xyz and um, download it and try it. I guarantee you it will make your life easier. Um, it's it's really a joy to work with, and I'm having so much fun trying everything out. I just want more stuff now. <laughs> um T-E-A, but,
1: a, by the way.
2: I'm sorry. What did I say?
1: Well, no, you said T, but nobody
2: can could be T. Oh, that's a see? good point. T-E-A dot X-Y-Z. There you go. I've been uh, installing some apps while we're talking, letting people see how it functions and works. It's fantastic. Um, so I really appreciate what you guys are doing, Max, and uh, look forward to seeing what's coming next. And we'll get you back on once you guys are ready to launch uh, on Mainnet and you've got the uh, steeping in place.
0: Absolutely. I uh, would love to come back. And uh, thanks very
2: much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for uh, participating and listening.